Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, Future Soldier, the government's new blueprints for a smaller, more high-tech army. It will also be an army designed for genuine warfighting credibility as an expeditionary fighting force that will be both deployable and lethal when called upon to fight and win. But can it deliver? Also on the programme, an immeasurable shift in the way the forces will handle complaints about sexual behaviour. It's absolutely mammoth for the MOD to have agreed to do this. This is a success for all those women that had the bravery to step forward and have their voice heard. And a legacy of military service which has blighted the lives of hundreds of thousands. It's like somebody playing a sort of weird musical instrument in the background all day, every day. It impairs what you can hear, but it makes you really tired. The army is getting another big shake-up. This time, it's called Future Soldier. The army will now be reorganised to operate on a continuous basis, fielding all the relevant capabilities for this era of constant competition and persistently engaged around the globe, supporting our partners and deterring our adversaries. The Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, has set out how the army will be reshaped after the announcement earlier this year that it would lose a third of its tanks and several thousand soldiers, but get billions of pounds worth of new vehicles and technology. The army will be split into four divisions rather than the current three, training and operating away from home more of the time, including at new global land hubs in Oman, Kenya, Belize and Germany. But Labour's Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy warned it could leave the army too small and thinly stretched to deal with the threats to the UK. Given recent events, not least in Ukraine, surely the army's primary role must be to reinforce Europe against Russia and be an effective warfighting partner to NATO allies. Now, this demands high-end warfighting capabilities, not just light forces and cyber operations. Brigadier Ben Barry is former Director of Army Staff and now Senior Fellow for Land Warfare at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. I asked him if Future Soldier lives up to its billing of the biggest modernisation of the Army for a generation. I think he's exaggerating slightly. There have been reorganisations and restructurings over the last generation. But to give credit to the Defence Secretary, as well as a reorganisation here, we have confirmation of a considerable increase in spending on army equipment, the army being the British armed service that's least modernised at the moment. So apart from the spending, what are the main changes? Well, the reorganisation um, is quite considerable with the 3rd Division uh, giving up one of its armoured infantry brigades and instead forming a new deep strike uh, reconnaissance brigade, uh, converting the um, specialist infantry group uh, to the new special operations brigade, uh, doubling the size of the Army's electronic warfare capabilities, also increasing its air defence capabilities, as well as making the reserves make a greater contribution to national resilience and homeland defence, including reforming a reserve brigade. And on the subject of the Special Operations Brigade, how different is that and the Ranger Regiments? Well, the name of the Ranger Regiments is a bit of a misnomer um, because in the United States, this capability exists 
and it's performed by the Green Beret Special Operations Forces. But it is new to the British Army in terms of formalising this capability, particularly to partner with friendly and indigenous forces, including on operations and under fire. Now, the British Army uh, did that in Afghanistan, particularly. It was what the operational mentoring and liaison teams, the omelets, did. But setting up a force structure uh, devoted to this is new. And what difference will this reorganisation make to what the army can do exactly? Well, it's going to take time because, um, as the future soldier document uh, shows, there's a lot of unit moves, a lot of unit reorganisation. And I'm afraid, um, such is the inheritance of -of out-of-date and obsolete equipment, that it probably won't be much before 2030 that all the equipment has been procured. Um, The third division is going to acquire this deep strike reconnaissance capability, uh, which should make make a difference. Uh, What concerns me, though, is the replacement of Warrior by a vehicle with less firepower, Boxer. Now, Boxer is a great armoured vehicle. It's been very successfully exported, but um, it has less firepower, or at least the version the British are buying, has less firepower than the Warrior vehicle it's going to replace. But what about the emphasis on new technology, the digitally networked armoured vehicles? Can that give the edge? It certainly can, and we have seen hints of this. I mean, Bowman did have some transformative effects on the uh, British Army, but quite clearly it's a late 1990s system. And we can see in the air and maritime domain that full digital connectivity between aircraft and ships does create an operational advantage. But again, there's a big assumption on this that the vast amounts of secure bandwidth that's necessary will be available. Now, the enemy might choose to interfere with this, especially by electronic warfare. Now, what that does do positively is it shows the importance of the army's decision to double its electronic warfare regiments from one to two. Could you just explain exactly what electronic warfare is to someone who's never been involved or heard about it before? Yes, there's two elements to it. The first one is signals intelligence which is what you can get from listening in to enemy and your opponent's transmissions. And even if those transmissions are completely secure, mapping the network that the enemy's using can tell you a lot about it, including the, its structure and the places where the enemy headquarters are, for example. Now, that signals intelligence. Offensive electronic warfare is basically jamming. And jamming is almost as old as radio, radio itself, and 14 Signal Regiment has always had a jamming capability. So we should assume that the Army's ability to jam its opponent's uh, electronic networks is going to at least double. And the government's position is that the Army will be more capable despite losing thousands of soldiers and a third of its tanks because of this technology. Is that realistic? Well, it's a bet on technology. It's also a bet that funding the technology by reducing the manpower is going to have more advantages than disadvantages. We will see a particular aspect of this is the reduction of the 3rd Division, Y1 Ground Manoeuvre Brigade. Now, there's an inconvenient truth um, for Mr Wallace and the British Army that most other armies consider a division to have at least three ground manoeuvre brigades, and it will be quite difficult to explain to NATO uh, why the British are dropping one of the division's ground manoeuvre brigades. In addition, for all the investment in the Special Operations Brigade, 
and the Security Force Assistance Brigade and all the um, important messages about partnering with other countries, particularly fragile states, it's difficult to see how a smaller army is going to do this better because it's about people-to-people interactions. And what is this all going to mean for those who are serving in the army, particularly given the plans to have more personnel deployed more of the time? Well, I think that a lot of these extra deployments could be very exciting and very very fulfilling. And I think uh, people in the army will will welcome that. There's also the opportunity uh, for the army reserve to participate in this as well. I think the army reserve will also welcome their increased role in national resilience and home and home def- and home defense um, but whether this will be welcomed by families particularly if um, the underwhelming state of married quarters is not reversed quickly enough um, I think we'll have to wait and see that was Brigadier Ben Barry news discussions and analysis this is sitrap. The direct military chain of command is to be removed from investigations of sexual complaints by members of the armed forces. It's the result of testimony from thousands of women to an MP's inquiry into their experience in the armed forces. People like this woman who was raped after an evening of drinking while she served in the Royal Navy. At first, she was the one charged and disciplined. We've disguised her voice to protect her identity. I didn't fully understand what happened at the time. I didn't have a full understanding of uh, consent. I, I honestly, I was, I was too in shock and in denial, and I just didn't understand what had happened or how how it happened. Um, I, I wasn't, I wasn't in a place to ask any of the right questions myself, and certainly no one asked them, asked them for me. Yeah, I, I. I and honestly, I don't know how I functioned the, the, the ten, 10 days I remained on board. I actually went to the civilian police first. I knew in my heart that I didn't want to go to the military police and I couldn't fully explain why. Perhaps I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't rely on them. Everyone's working for the captain at the end of the day, so they had responsibilities to him and he was determined to... That, that I was the problem at every stage there seemed to be uh, victim blaming and uh, just perpetuation of, of rape myths and when, what, what I really wanted was an apology for uh, that you know someone to hold up their hands and say yeah mistakes were made and we're going to do better for other women in the future I, I don't think that's a really big thing to ask for The damning MP's report found six out of ten women who had experienced abuse in the forces didn't report it, for fear of damaging their career or that nothing would be done. The government has accepted the vast majority of the recommendations from the Defence Subcommittee, but it rejected three, most notably refusing to remove rape and sexual assault trials from military courts and place them in civilian ones. The Conservative MP and Army veteran Sarah Atherton chaired the MP's investigation. I asked her how big a step it is to remove the direct chain of command from complaints about sexual behaviour. 
it's absolutely mammoth for the MOD uh, to have agreed to do this. Uh, certainly in the evidence we collected, there was a lot of evidence to support the uh, inappropriate use of the chain of command uh, by commanding officers, uh, which then negated actually um, enforcing a, a decent complaints procedure for women. And we actually found that actually the chain of command uh, didn't want really that extra work. They wanted to be military leaders. They didn't want to be police or social workers. Uh, so I'm hoping that they will also be pleased that for uh, complaints of bullying, harassment, discrimination, and those of a sexual nature, they are now going to be removed from that whole process. So if the chain of command is removed from the complaints in this, of this nature, who will people complain to? Okay, uh, I've had clarification from the MOD about that question today. Uh, women, service women can download a form so they don't even need to go to the chain of command. They submit that form to the single service secretariat and this is all very new now. So. Um, the admissibility aspect of that complaint uh, will be looked at and investigated under an outsourced independent investigation service. Um, so that's quite different to what has been happening um, previously. Is there a danger, though, that going to someone you don't even know could inhibit you in another way? Uh, I think quite the contrary, actually. I think uh, the women I have spoken to would prefer to go to someone they don't know, someone that isn't in their unit, predominantly a man and predominantly their boss. Uh, so I think, no, I think they would prefer to go to someone they don't know. Yes, they've accepted most of your recommendations now. Which of the other changes they've promised are most significant, do you think? I am disappointed that uh, rape, serious sexual assault, manslaughter will be retained and heard in the military courts um, under concurrent jurisdiction. Of course, that's going to be voted on on Monday under the Armed Forces Bill. Uh, I'm also a little disappointed that um, ombudsman appeals, the timescale to an appeal against an ombudsman ruling uh, will be reduced from six weeks to two weeks. Um, but what service women are telling me is they are really pleased that there's going to be a six month um, acceleration of equipment, clothing, sanitary products and women's health policies. So they're going to really, uh, you know, do a very quick step to mm. try and improve these, which actually should have been done before. And particularly the issues of evidence that came through was around body armour. And they're already looking at um, changing that so it fits a, a female form. So three of your recommendations have not been accepted. Most significantly is that one about not removing rape and sexual assault cases from military courts. Why was that so important to you? Uh, because of the sheer volume um, and really extensive evidence we received from women about uh, women who had been sexually assaulted and raped uh, and about the investigation that they found was re-traumatising for them. Uh, the incident itself was bad enough, but the process they had to go through uh, really caused them secondary harm going forward. And the statistics for me supported the fact that rape should, have, should be heard in a civilian court. The MOD uh, think differently. Uh, they been looking at the statistics around in, um, making a complaint and investigation, whereas I was looking more about the statistics around convictions. So we're talking two separate things there, but I'm disappointed that the MOD aren't uh, embracing this because I think they would have shown good leadership in that. But in all other areas, uh, I'm, I'm very happy with this. And I just want to, to uh, put on record that, you know, this is a success for all those women that had the bravery to step forward and have their voice heard 
heard, not only them, but the charities and their representatives as well. So you're saying this is a, you, you thank the people who've taken part in your research for this. How do you think this is going to change the experience of women in the armed forces? I think it's going to change it dramatically because crucially, the MOD have now accepted there's a problem, have acknowledged there's a problem and are now putting uh, plans in place uh, to make a more level playing field for women in the military. And of course, ultimately, this is about operational effectiveness. So I think it's going to make um, quite a substantial difference. But I think like all things, you know, we need a cultural change and that will come in time. That won't happen overnight. And what is still missing from the plan, do you think? Um, I would like to see more process around how they're going to measure success because we've already seen a raft of initiatives put in over the last five years. Um, for example, Victims Charter, um, the Harassment, Bullying and Discrimination Helpline. But actually, when we spoke to these women, some of them didn't know about it. Some of them had used it, but said it wasn't really changing behaviour. Uh, and for me, you know, there are a raft of initiatives now going to be put in place again. I'd like some system that can measure the success and can measure whether we are going to see cultural change as a result of these initiatives. Service chiefs have promised a six-month sprint for work on women's health and kits, which you mentioned. What do you want from that exactly? I just think it's um, quite flabbergasting, really, that women have been in frontline roles for so long, and yet they haven't got the kit uh, to, to, to support them in that. Uh, I don't understand why the MOD haven't done this earlier. So I'm really pleased that they're now doing this. And I think this report, because it is the voice of serving women, uh, carries that much gravity that the MOD really have to now put you know, deeds instead of words, have to now action that. So I really hope that they were going to do that. And I know they are already looking at that and particularly around women's health as well, um, because we've got, you know, mums that are breastfeeding. Uh, we've got women who are going through the menopause. We've got pregnancy issues. Uh, these are all sort of um, inhibiting women. Uh, and, and some of them are leaving soon after, you know, returning from uh, having children. And we want to encourage these women to stay. And we've got to be realistic about what people want in this modern military. Um, and in order to do that, we have to make some changes. So I'm really pleased we're looking at this. Mm. Um, and I'll certainly be looking at it in a year's time to make sure we have got progress. Defence is setting a new target of 30% of recruits to be women by 2030. Is that important or is it just box ticking? I think it's an ambitious target. Uh, I don't see any problem uh, with that target. And, and I think from my experience going through this inquiry, a target is probably a good thing to have. For me, it's not only about recruitment, it's about retention. So you like some of the announcements that have been made, uh, the intentions, but you do believe there needs to be a culture change. How do you do that? How do you get the culture change? Well, they are going to, the MOD are going to implement an independent um, audit of culture. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that entails yet. Um, and I, you know, there are quite a, uh, quite a few um, reviews and audits and reports that have gone on over the last few years. Sometimes I think we're a bit reported and initiated out. Um, but, but hopefully culture will change. I met a commanding officer, a young commanding officer only last week uh, up in Scotland. And he'd said he'd read the report from cover to cover. And as a result, he'd got his peers together and said, what are we going to do about this report? And he's changed the way he leads his unit. 
on the back of that. Now, he's obviously very progressive, very outward looking. And I think for real cultural change, it's going to be organic. We're going to have to see people like this commanding officer going up into more senior ranks. So this is a great step forward. It's a credit to the women that have engaged in this inquiry. But cultural change takes time and it's not going to come overnight. The MP Sarah Atherton. Well, in a statement, the Defence Secretary said her committee's recommendations have been tested with our own service women's networks. He goes on, we are embracing almost all of them and in many cases actually taking them further. Now, this week, General Sir Nick Carter stepped down as Chief of the Defence Staff, handing over to Admiral Sir Tony Radican. But heading into retirement, General Carter takes one unwelcome legacy from more than 40 years military service hearing loss, something he revealed in a recent exchange with Conservative MP Marc Francois. Uh, you know, as a professional military officer, would you want to go to war in a tank that makes you deaf? I think I already have done. And you, you can't be, sir, because you can hear me now. Um, yes, on a good day. But as you said, I've often asked you during the course of this conversation to repeat what you were saying. And having been brought up in the FV432, yeah. and then bless it, the warrior as both a commanding officer and a brigade commander, um, I very well know that the quality of um, hearing protection that I received was perhaps not as great as it could be. General Carter is far from alone. The Royal British Legion estimates 300,000 people live with hearing damage from their military service. Among them, 98-year-old RAF veteran Graham Woodthorpe. But first, Nick Mercer, who spent 23 years in the Royal Artillery. And because of my army service, I got tinnitus, which is like this constant ringing in your ears. And it's, um, it impairs what you can hear, but it makes you really tired. It's like somebody playing a sort of weird musical instrument in the background all day, every day. You know, I hear all right with hearing aids, yeah. But if I take this one out, this one goes nearly dead. We used to test engines at full bat for days at a time, uh, sometimes with just a piece of chalk in your ear. (laughs) When I came out of the Air Force and people started to talk to me face to face, I suddenly realised, especially with the left one, that I wasn't hearing what they said. As a cadet, when I went on the ranges, we didn't have any kind of hearing protection. We used to stick the wadding that was used to clean the rifles with in our ears to try and protect them from the noise of the the rifles firing. And we used to do a lot of shooting. It was the main activity as a cadet that you could do. I think it was just accepted that you would end up deaf. It's a bit like being a rugby player. If you're a professional rugby player, you accept that you'll end up with a mangled body. You don't realise... When you're working on uh, engines, you know, that uh, there must be some kind of damage, but uh, you don't realise it. It's all part of the job. Well, much has changed since Graham and Nick served. The Ministry of Defence says it carefully assesses noise levels and provides hearing protection when asking personnel to undertake duties in noisy environments. But the problem has not gone away. Testing on the Army's new Ajax armoured vehicles has resulted in 39 people suffering hearing damage, five so badly they've been medically downgraded. Former Labour MP Madeleine Moon, who sat on the Defence Committee for 10 years, says this needs to be a wake-up call. Clearly enough hasn't been done in the past. If people are still suffering loss with Ajax now, 
then there are still problems that we need to be addressing. And there's been a, a lot of focus on all sorts of things about Ajax, but ultimately, even if we can get a platform that actually has movement mobility, has fire capability, if it is still causing long-term industrial injuries, which is what it is, to personnel, we need to step up our game, our game and make sure that personnel are protected, particularly with hearing loss. Well, we can speak now to Nick Mercer, who you heard a moment ago. He's a trustee of the UK Veterans Hearing Foundation. And Nick, clearly things have changed since the days when you put wadding in your ears as a cadet. But how much does your charity see evidence of hearing problems among the current generation of service leavers? The current generation, and particularly the op Helmand Iraq and Afghanistan generation that fought in what they call those heavy kinetic battles, are just starting to reveal themselves to us. Unfortunately, because we've got no money at the moment, we have to turn them all away. Our youngest veteran on the books is 26 years old, and he's from that generation. And they are going to have worse hearing loss than my generation. You never saw a para reach for his hearing protection when he was fighting the Taliban on some rooftop in Sangin. He was too busy protecting his mates and making sure he could hear them if they were wounded or if they were running out of ammunition. And the noise levels when you're being attacked like that are horrific. So hearing protection in combat, I'm afraid it goes out of the window. It is a constant balancing act, isn't it? Because when you are in combat, you need to be able to communicate with your colleagues and you just can't block out the noise because you could be at greater risk. Your primary role is to kill the enemy and everything else is secondary to that. Health and safety, all of that, it just goes out of the window. In my regiment, which is about deep engagement with the enemy, you're very often firing at maximum charge in a gun which has got a turret which amplifies the sound and the overpressure that you're exposed to. We had to keep physical records of how many artillery shells were fired by each gunner at maximum charge because the medics gave us a physical number each day that they were allowed to fire. And it's not just your hearing that gets affected, unfortunately. The pressure from an artillery gun firing at maximum range mashes your internal organs, which is why we were rationed on the number of shells we could fire. Do you just have to accept then that you're going to have these physical problems, hearing injury, and, and you talk about the, your, your internal organs as well? I mean, is this an occupational hazard of military service? It is. It's completely unavoidable. Um, although hearing protection is provided, often it doesn't work. Often it's completely impractical to the job you do, and you have to leave it to one side. And sadly, the MOD in its assessment of people for hearing loss when they're discharged generally says, well, we gave you hearing protection. If you're deaf now, it's your own fault. Now, that applies a little bit in peacetime, but in combat, my guns used to fire maybe four or 500 shells a year. In combat, you're firing 500 a day. The, the order of magnitude of the hearing damage is far greater, and you just have to accept, at the end of your service, you're going to be deaf. So what about the treatment? What kind of developments are there to help people who've suffered with hearing problems as a result of their military service? Well, there are great things coming along for those who are still serving. The Professor of Defence Medical Services Hearing and Ear, Nose and Throat has got fabulous plans for basically an audiology test that can be carried out on a gun position in the field 
it's a pair of headphones attached to a tablet. And if you think you've been sent deaf by the last round you fired, they put this thing on your ears and push a button. It gives a test and it emails it to her and her medics. If they find that you are deaf, they can inject steroids in your ears or behind your ears very quickly and correct the hearing loss. And it builds up a picture of how each person is suffering increasing hearing loss. The Ministry of Defence says it has a robust medical system to fully support service personnel who may have been affected by noise issues. But what's the veterans' experience of getting support for hearing problems? Well, the veterans are in the lap of the National Health Service, and that, of course, is inconsistent. Different trusts and different regions treat patients differently. In my own experience, I got NHSAs that worked fine for five years. And then my wife sent me back because basically I couldn't hear again. I was missing conversation in the family and thinking they were hiding things from me. I'd stopped going out to parties because I couldn't hear what people said. And I went to the NHS. They tested my hearing aids and said, I'm sorry, Mr Mercer, it's your ears that are broken. These aids are OK, but we got nothing better. And they suggested I go to Boots and spend 7,000 quid. So I just put up with it for another few years. And then in 2016, the Royal British Legion started a hearing fund. And within a month, I got free programmable digital hearing aids from the RBL's fund. And that changed my life again. I was able to carry on in work for another three or four years. And it made me nice dad, not grumpy dad anymore. Because, of course, I thought the family were hiding things from me. Nick Mercer from the UK Veterans Hearing Foundation and you can read more about the charity and how BFBS has supported it at bfbs.com slash big salute. And that's all for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 